Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive Podcast. It's me, Chris Howard from Lace Partners, joining you as a duet with another Lacer today. And that's Max Bailey, who is part of our executive team, our client executive director. Max, how are you doing? You're right? Fantastic. Chris, how are you today? I am feeling good. I'm feeling good. Although I'm doing this as uh, as we've just been talking about, I've just I'm doing this within one of the uh, single person booths in the office and it's an absolute sweat box in here. So always good fun and make sure I've got a glass of water as well. But we're not here to talk about my environment that we're in. We're actually going to be doing some reflections on a webinar that we ran with Mark Corden, who's the HR Transformation Director at Park Dean Resorts, earlier on this week as we are releasing this podcast. And Mark talked about his and Park Dean's journey from implementing from right from the decision to implement a new HCM system and some of the challenges, some of the benefits, some of the rewards of it, some of the things that he came across. And we use the webinar really as an opportunity to share with our community of people that follow us a almost like a a case example of, you know, this is what we've done. These are the learnings that we've got from it. Now, of course, our users, sorry, our listeners can, of course, access the webinar on demand. And what I'll do is I'll put something in the show notes so they can listen to Mark and his views as well. But what I wanted to do today is pick your brains as a person that in your time at Lace and then obviously in the businesses, the, in the consultancies you've worked beforehand, you've done a fair few implementations from start to finish. And so I wanted to go through some of the questions, challenges, and some of the, the learnings that Mark had picked out and just really probe your brain, if that's all right. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And if I think of all the clients I've worked across, well, not only at Lace, but also in previous lives, I suspect we'll find a lot of synergies and similarities across their experience and and the points that Mark made in that webinar, which I, I did have a chance to catch up on earlier. Yeah, brilliant. So let's start off with, Mark talked about three key elements. When we first kicked off, he talked about their transformation journey. He talked about three key elements that were really, really important for them in the business as to how they were looking at their actual implementation itself. So he talked about, we want to know what is the role of HR and what does that look like for the future? How do we actually better support people through a centralised HR function? And then he also talked about how do we come off of our old legacy system and improve the workflows that we're in to create a more efficient HCM? I mean, from just as a top line sort of macro view, are they? is that a very consistent kind of approach? When clients come to us and say, this is the problem that we're trying to solve, is that very, very similar to the sorts of things that we see? Yeah, Chris, I think that's I think those are great points made by Mark, and I think they're very consistent with what we see with many of our clients. Now, the answer to those questions may be diff- very different for each of our clients, you know, with different businesses, with different workforces, with different drivers that are motivating them. But as a starting set of questions, I think those are perfect, because if I think back many, many years, if you're looking at transforming the HR function, whether it's a pure organizational redesign or whether it's technology-enabled transformation, you would always start with the question, what is the future role of HR? What is HR's role in the business? What can we centralize? What should stay with the line manager? What should be in the HR business partner? What is an HR business partner question? So that whole, what is the future role of HR? What is the purpose of HR? 
as a function and therefore how should it be shaped and what technology support does it need has always been one of the key questions you would start with as part of a an HR transformation, or if you were looking at finance, for example, as part of a finance transformation, you'd be saying, what, what is the role of finance in the future? How do we want finance to work in the future? So I think it's a starting point for the business function being transformed. That's absolutely the right question. You then have to look at it through the personas of the, I guess, key clients of those of that business function. Now, as we know, the key client of HR is really the employee and more broadly the line manager. So then asking, how will that make the life of the employee better? How will that make the life of the line manager better? Key questions to underpin getting the broader business brought into the change. And then the last point that Mark made was really around, and how do we get off our old technology? Or in fact, in Park Dean's case, and what we're seeing with many of our clients, how do we even get onto a centralized system? Because at the moment, we don't have a centralized system. So I think those are absolutely the right three questions to start with. The answer, of course, will be very, very different depending on who you are as a client. Yeah, indeed. And just as an interesting segue on that last piece that you were just mentioning, one of the things that Mark had talked about in the webinar was how there was a perception before he joined the business that we want this new tech, we want to get it in to the business, let's just get it in and then see how we how we get on. So is that something that you've seen a lot of in your time with businesses are just, let's just get this new tech in, get it up and running and away we go before stepping back and asking that kind of question of what does good actually look like? Yeah, I have. I have seen a number of businesses start with that approach. What we also see, particularly in, in the value case work we do at LACE, where we're looking for that initial value case for the transformation, looking for the leadership alignment and vision. What we typically see is that businesses that are in the place of we just want the tech in. It's because it's been a technology-led rather than a business-led transformation case. I wouldn't say that that isn't the right approach in a small number of cases where perhaps there's a very, very good reason to focus on getting the tech piece done. And I'll come back to an example of that in a second. But generally speaking, we would always advise people to focus less on the technology and more about what the business outcome you need from the technology or you want to achieve through the technology. The technology is an enabler. It's not a be all and an end all of itself. Now, the one, I guess, exception to that that almost proves the rule is if you are on an existing platform that's nearing end of life and you're doing an upgrade, you may want to actually just focus on the technical upgrade without really looking at changing the business, particularly where you have critical functions such as payroll on your, on your historical platform. So there is a small number of use cases where just get the tech done may make sense. But generally, we would steer folks away from taking that viewpoint of a business case. So the other thing that he talks about, which I want to touch on, which I think is quite an important one, is about exec buy-in. And he talks about the exec team at Park Dean already being really, really committed to making the system work because they believed in the actual value that they're going to get from a productivity point of view. How It sounds like a really simple question to say, how important is that exec sponsorship buy-in? But have we got any examples where perhaps there's been clients that there hasn't been as much buy-in at that exact level. And what's been the offshoot of that in terms of getting the project up and running and successful and implemented? I think it's it's pretty clear from my experience, just reflecting on the question, that for a project to be successful, where it is truly a business transformation project, an HR transformation project, it needs to have senior executive buy-in. It needs to be sponsored for the business. If it's a pure 
tech upgrade or tech refresh. It's something that the exec need to know about. It's something that they need to have sponsored the budget for, but it's not really going to change the way of working in the business. It's a little bit like when you redo the wiring in your house, the light switches are still in the same place. The lights still come on, even though the wiring's been changed. That would be the use case where you're doing a very narrowly focused tech upgrade, where you've perhaps forced your, have been forced into doing that just by a various confluence of events. Outside of that very narrow use case, I would say the success of almost every program started with senior executive sponsorship, aligned vision, and a clear value case that's been bought into, not just at the group level, but across the key operating units. And part of the reason that becomes so important is most organizations may sponsor a, a global program or a you know cross-business unit program out of some sort of group function, but ultimately they'll tend to recharge the cost for the program to the individual operating units. Unless those operating units understand the value and have bought into it, you can see some very unhelpful behaviours developing where people or operating units effectively refuse to pay for the programme and the costs sit at the group level as effectively almost a black mark on the accounts that go out each year, eventually potentially becoming a write-off further down the track. So getting that vision and alignment is not just important about sponsoring the new way of working, the new capabilities you want, but also just even in terms of making sure that you've got the right funding and buy-in to get the thing done. Yeah, and that fun- thing is an interesting bit because he did actually talk about how at an exec level there was an acknowledgement that this isn't just about how much is this going to cost us and then the pound shillings and pence there was a recognition that actually there are other intangible productivity gains that will exist as a result of us doing this that perhaps we can't quantify by what drops into the balance sheet is that quite an unusual mindset from an exec team to have that perspective because in my mind it's almost like if you're going to produce a business case or if you're going to produce a case for new technology to an exec team quite often often the the perspective, again, you can say this is wrong, but I have the assumption that quite often exec team will say, okay, how much is it going to cost us? What are the financial implications? Looking at that a lot more closely than the intangibles. That is a a great question, Chris. And I think it, during the life cycle of a program, you'll find the emphasis of which part of the value case is most important will change. And I think Mark in, in the webinar talked about having to bring the business case back to life, actually. Yeah. And that, that was a great analogy, I think, that, that he used, or a great phrase, at least, that he used. So many of the HR CPOs, HR directors that I've worked with in terms of crafting the value case will start with an assumption almost that it can be an investment case rather than a business case. And they often proceed on that basis because there's a, in their mind, a burning platform for change, be it end-of-life system, be it many, many different ways of doing things, be it that they want to move to a shared service centre. So for their mind, there's a burning platform for change, which is pretty much within the HR space. At some stage in getting the value case aligned, you talk to the CFO and the conversation suddenly becomes, well, look, well, that's great for HR, but what's the benefit for the rest of the business? And so you then start to look much more at some of those outside of HR business cases or dimensions of the business case. And depending on the nature of the CFO and the nature of the, you know, almost the the finance rules for the organization. Sometimes HR will be told, no, you can only count savings that are directly under your control. In other, and I would call that an HR transformation business case, in other organizations, the business case or the value case becomes much more around the benefit to the operations and the workforce. And there I would talk about it being a workforce transformation business case or a workforce planning business case, depending on whether it's about upskilling or being more efficient in how you schedule and roster people. And the examples Mark used about people getting into post quicker and coming up to speed quicker, for me, are about a workforce 
transformation and recruiting business case. So if you can get people in post a month quicker and you're generating revenue from them a month quicker, is the nature of your business mean that that's something you can count as part of benefit? similar for time to proficiency in the learning space. So I think where I'm going with that slightly longer narrative, Chris, is that actually we would always look across the direct cost savings and the broader benefits to the business. But as with all business cases, as with all companies or clients, the actual specific value case you would create tends to be very client specific because it's based very much on their business, on their workforce, on their current situation. And, And I did agree with Alistair that fewer larger value levers are better than trying to carve out a business case with 25 value levers, yeah. not least of which giving someone the, the the two minute elevator pitch is very hard if you've got 15 levers versus having one. So the other thing I just wanted to talk about, I wanted to touch on, actually, no, let's let's scale back on that in a second. So you talked about within HR's control and that being a HR transformation versus a workforce transformation, which is more looking at the business's almost objectives for getting the project running. It strikes me and I just want to get you to reflect on your thoughts on this, that surely most organisations should be aspiring to a workforce transformation approach rather than a HR transformation approach, because it's going to have a wider benefit to the business as a whole, rather than just, well, let's look at this transformation that happens within the HR space and within the costs that I have. Yeah, absolutely. And we would typically look at it as a people transformation or a a workforce transformation type business case. But the reason I sort of make that subtle distinction is people often think of workforce transformation business cases is very much linked to the upskilling of the workforce or to the learning function. There's many other dimensions that I would refer to as sort of a a people business case or a people transformation or workforce transformation business case. So things like improving the effectiveness of your scheduling and rostering and therefore reducing overtime hours. For example, if you can reduce the total wage bill by three to four to five percent across a a large workforce, that is a massively compelling business case, even if you're increasing the cost of HR rather than reducing it. So I think it just it really loops back to that point that the value case should be as broad as possible, focus on those two or three value levers. If you focus just on HR, it's mainly going to ultimately come back to cost cutting in the HR space. Good question. So the other thing I just wanted to touch on is around when Mark started talking, Aaron was asking Mark around how the project is broken down almost into like milestones, because it's quite easy to look at, well, we've got this huge implementation that we've got to do and it might take us a few years. And it, in fact, it's going to be an ongoing project as we continuously iterate the system. And I quite liked when he talked about, let's break this down into phases and, and sections. In other words, you know, what do we need to do to get us to the point where it's good enough? He kept using that phrase, good enough to go live. And then the next part of our, if we're going to break down the big project into little milestones, what do we do at year one? How do, after we've good enough to go on live, if you if you like, 12 months in, what are the projects and what are the little bits that we need to bolt on to the system to then get it to that next level? And then 12 months later than that, how do we then get it really sort of cooking on gas, so to speak, as my old man would say? Is that mindset that Mark has adopted there something that you've seen and we've seen across clients? Do we get clients that, or have you worked with businesses that find it very difficult to compartmentalise the different stages of the projects? I think Mark's approach is absolutely spot on. I'd also say it's almost the standard approach, if I could be so bold. So when we talk about a roadmap or a programme plan, we're always talking about introducing the new capability 
be that people process technology in digestible chunks so that we're able to throttle, if you will, or regulate the pace of change within the organization. And that can be regulated almost in two or three different dimensions. One is how much change can the organization itself digest in any given period of time? The second is how much money do you have to actually, or how much funding do you have? Because Clearly, the amount of capability you can implement is often linked to the funding. And then the third one is actually the capability, the energy and the team to deliver. And I think you've all, you'll always find across those three dimensions that typically a program will be split up into phases with each phase delivering a new capability or a new deployment of an existing capability. Mark's approach is absolutely spot on. We would often just call that a, a program plan or a roadmap. And that's what we, you know, at, at LACE spend a lot of time with our clients helping them articulate because there is a tendency in clients occasionally to want to do it all at once. And I think that can lead you rapidly into trying to boil the ocean, as, as my old man would say. But also the benefit that Mark had is he was coming from a reasonably low level of capability within the organization in terms of a central function, in terms of a central system. So just using the other challenge, which we often see is if people are already on a central system that's giving them a lot of capability, when you introduce the new one, it really needs to cover all the stuff that the current one does. Whereas with Mark, he was implementing almost in a greenfield way and onboarding each of the business units. So the just good enough to go live was an argument that he could make that in some other organizations you'd struggle to make. Because of course, people that have already got a fully integrated system that works end to end, saying to them, well, you're only going to get half the functionality in the new one would become a barrier to change rather than something you'd encourage them to adopt it. Yeah, that adoption piece of people then try having the desire to do it and you get constantly, the old system wasn't like this. In the old system, we did this. And let's just touch on that because I want to get your views on this. One of the, I'll, I'll quote Mark here. I hope he doesn't mind me doing this. If he's listening into it. But when he was asked about the importance of the change and adoption of getting the change and adoption approach right when they launch the new system, what he said was, it is the success by which an implementation is measured. It doesn't matter how much time you spend beforehand on the config, nothing matters if the first user experience isn't quite right for the business. Just give me your kind of thoughts on his perspective there and yeah, your, your general take on the importance of getting that change and adoption strategy right once you've put the new system in, it's all shiny and new, and now you've got to tell the business about it. Particularly interesting, as you've just mentioned, when you might have an organisation that has had an, a system in place where you might have half the business that thinks, well, there's nothing wrong with that system. I think a couple of organisations, change and adoption starts well in advance of go live, so well in advance of you actually implementing the system, but it also carries on post live so you can create a continuous adoption framework a way of reinforcing and building capability and using the platform as the platform evolves but actually as the seasonality around hr where people will line managers in particular or employees will need to be doing different things in the system at different parts of the year. So having that ongoing change and adoption piece fit for purpose for the organization and the workforce, I think is incredibly critical because I agree with Mark, no matter how good the implementation is, if no one uses the system or if they don't have a good experience using the system, you'll tend to suffer from something that might occasionally be called user rejection and have to come back and relaunch the system at a later date, which no one wants to do. Now, that's not to say that the technical implementation is easy, but it's almost the worst outcome where the thing technically works, but actually 
someone skimped on the investment for the change and adoption piece because you almost then undermine all of the hard work of the program team and frankly getting what can often be a very complex technical solution to work into it. Yeah. Certainly. And just linked into that, one of the things I thought was really interesting when he started talking about regional champions, so Park Dean said there's 66 parks. And one of the things that was really, really important to their perspective was to develop, he called it a platform board, which is a group of people from different functions that really get to know the system very, very close. Almost, I guess you'd call them the advocates of the system. So you can get that buy-in across different departments. And then he also talked about then getting regional champions in the different parks so that you've got that expert, obviously the boots on the ground that have got that buy-in too. Is that a common approach that most organisations will take, particularly when they're across multi-sites? Is there instances where you've seen that work really, really well? Is there instances where you've seen it perhaps work less well? And what's your general thought on the approach that he did with that idea of this platform board followed by these regional champions? I think, Chris, the approach is a reasonably standard change network approach. Even though I think back to the late 90s when I started doing some of this stuff, you'd be talking about creating a change network, change champions. So very, very similar approach. So whilst some of the tools, techniques, tricks of the trade have evolved significantly over that you know, elapsed time. We're no longer talking about instructor-led learning. We're now doing you know, bite-sized, digestible learning. So whilst the tools and the tricks of the trade have evolved a lot in, in the past decade or three, it's very fair to say that that change network concept and of cascading key messages is as it was, always has been through business transformation, HR transformation type projects. The interesting thing as well, though, that's worth reflecting on when, you know, when I say that is it also depends on the degree of change change that's being introduced. If the processes, so and if I just draw two, two different examples. In the case of Park D, in Mark's words, the people data was fragmented and broken. The processes were different in each of the operating units or in each of the parks. There wasn't a common way of doing things. So for Park D, it was much more of a getting people to level set onto, onto harmonized processes, a single system, and onto a consistent platform and way of working. And that is a much bigger change to introduce for the first time than where you're perhaps saying, yes, we're getting a new system, but we already have a shared service center. We already have harmonized processes. We already have integrated people data. So in Mark's case, the degree of change and therefore the effectiveness of that change network was so much higher or needed to be so much higher for his program to be a success. If the degree of change being introduced, as in my second example there, is a lot lower, would you still use the same structures? Absolutely you would. But would you need to have put as much effort into it? Probably not. Because even from an HR perspective, you wouldn't be changing HR's jobs necessarily at the same time as putting in a new system, they would be doing the same transactions as they used to just on a new platform. Similar for the line managers, they might still be doing the same 25 transactions on behalf of their employees or themselves, but they're already doing those in the old system. The new system's just easier to use. So it's that degree of change from the old way of working to the new way of working that you can then use to regulate how big or how thick that change network needs to be. But the concept absolutely 100% critical. Yeah, spot on. Cool. Well, we've kind of touched on a few bits on it. I don't want to go through everything that was discussed because, of course, then it would turn into one hours of us just essentially repeating some of the interesting nuggets from the webinar itself. And as I said right at the beginning of the show, of course, we'll put a link to the webinar itself that people can listen to or watch on demand as they see fit. But Max, it's been really, really interesting getting your insight and almost a lace perspective on some of the conversations that Aaron, Mark, and of course, Alistair from Ceridian 
had as well. So thank you very much for spending a little bit of time with me today and reflecting on that. As always, it's been a great pleasure. It's been a pleasure indeed. Uh, you can, of course, get this podcast, as I say, every week on all of the usual channels, Apple. You can shout at your Alexa device, HR on the Offensive, and you'll get the latest version. And of course, we do post it on the Lace Partners website. And you can see all of the back catalogue that we've got as well. If you go to www.lacepartners.co.uk forward slash podcast, I bet people that have listened to this podcast a few times are probably sick of me saying that. I do it just because I think occasionally there might be the odd new listener that won't exactly know where to find us. But hopefully, if you are a new listener, and this is the first time that you're listening, hello, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this edition of the HR on the Offensive podcast. And we will be back next week. And until then, Max, once again, thanks for coming on. It's always a pleasure. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive podcast. Bye-bye.